Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everybody. This is Terry from Texas. It's time again for Terry's Mysterious Moments. Have you ever heard of John Frum? Uh, John Frum appears to have been someone who said he was John from the United States or wherever. And he appeared to a bunch of Pacific Islanders, um, a place called Vanuatu, little island called Tana. He's depicted as a U.S. serviceman from World War II who will bring wealth and prosperity to the people if they follow him. The religion centering on John Frum arose in the late 1930s when Vanuatu was known as the New Hebrides. Although there was a claim in 1949 that it started in the 1910s, the movement was influenced by existing religious practice in the Sulphur Bay area of Tana, particularly the worship Kara Paraman, a god associated with Mount Tukosamera. In some versions of the story, a native man named Manahivi, using the alias John Frum, began appearing among the native people of Tana dressed in a western-style coat, assuring the people he would bring them houses, clothes, food, and transport. Others contend that John Frum was a kava-induced spirit vision. Kava affects the brain and other parts of the central nervous system. The kava lactones in kava are believed to be responsible for its effects. Said to be a manifestation of Kira Paraman, this John Frum promised the dawn of a new age in which all white people, including missionaries, would depart the New Hebrides, leaving behind their goods and property for the native Melanesians. For this to happen, however, the people of Tana had to reject all aspects of European society, including money, Western education, Christianity, and work on copper plantations and they had to return to traditional custom. 
the Bislama language word for customs. In 1941, followers of John Frum rid themselves of their money in a frenzy of spending. They left the missionary churches, schools, and villages and plantations and moved inland to participate in traditional feasts, dances, and rituals. European colonial authorities sought to suppress the movement, at one point arresting a Tannese man calling himself John Frum, humiliating him publicly, imprisoning and ultimately exiling him along with other leaders of the cult to another island in the archipelago. Despite this effort, the movement gained popularity in the early 1940s after 50,000 American troops were stationed in New Hebrides during World War II, bringing with them an enormous amount of supplies, or cargo. During the war, approximately 10,000 Ni Vanatua men served in the Vanatua Labor Corps, which was a labor battalion of the United States Armed Forces. They provided logistical support to the Allied war effort during the Guadalcanal campaign. The mass participation of Ni Vanatua men in the labor corps had a significant effect on the John Frum movement, giving it the characteristics of a cargo cult. After the war and the departure of the Americans, followers of John Frum built symbolic landing strips to encourage American airplanes to land and bring them cargo. Versions of the cult emphasizing the American connection interpret John Frum as a corruption of John Frum America, perhaps, although it could mean John Frum anywhere that's not of Vanuatuan origin. In 1957, the leader of the John Frum movement, Nakamaha, created the Tana Army, a nonviolent, ritualistic society that organized military-style parades of men with faces painted in ritual colors and wearing white t-shirts with the letters T-A-USA, which is Tana Army USA. This parade takes place every year on February 15th, the date on which followers believe John Frum will return, and which is observed as John Frum Day in, in Vanuatu. In the late 1970s, John Frum followers opposed the imminent creation of an independent United Nation of Vanuatu. They objected to a centralized government they feared would favor Western modernity and Christianity that would be detrimental to local customs. However, the John Frum movement has its own political party led by Song Kispai. The party celebrated its 50th anniversary on February 15, 2007. Chief Isaac Juan Nikiao, its leader, was quoted by the BBC from years past as saying that John Frum is our God, our Jesus and would eventually return. In December of 2011, the president of the John Frum movement and jointly of Nagriamel, a Ni Vanuatu political party, was Thaitem Goiset, 
a woman of Vietnamese origin and sister of businessman Dinh Van Tan, despite the leadership of these movements having been previously held by high-ranking male chiefs. In 2013, Phaitam Goiset was sacked from her role as Vanuatu's ambassador to Russia amid evidence of corrupt activities. Around the other side of the world, the history of Loftus Hall, which is a large mansion house located along the Hook Peninsula off Ireland, goes back through the centuries. The original hall was built in 1350 by the Redmond family during the time of the Black Death. It was known as Redmond Hall until the 1650s when it was given to English planters, the Loftus family, and from then on was known as Loftus Hall. The building which stands today was heavily renovated between 1872 and 1879 in preparation for a visit from Her Majesty Queen Victoria. The visit never happened and the Loftus family were left with huge debt following the major work carried out on the building. The last of the surviving Loftus family passed away in 1890 and the bankrupt estate was put up for sale. Over the subsequent years, the building served as a home for the Benedictine nuns, a school for girls run by the Sisters of Providence, and at one point even became the Loftus Hall Hotel, which closed in the early 1900s. 2011, the house was sold to its current owners, the Quigley family. The family had secured the structure and are regenerating the walled gardens, the courtyard, and the house to ensure the future of Loftus Hall for the next generations. There is an eerie story that has stuck with Loftus Hall for many years. This chilling story includes the devil and a game of cards. On a dark and stormy night, aren't they all dark and stormy? Many decades ago, of course, a devilishly good-looking man knocked at the front door of Loftus Hall. His horse had gotten spooked by the loud thunder, he said, and threw him to the road. There is also a folklore version about, of the story about a mysterious stranger who claimed to be on a recently docked ship. As he walked from the road to the long lane leading into the hall, a storm arose, yet he remained completely dry. Anyway, the stranger begged for shelter from the dark and challenging night. Lord Charles Tottenham, a kind-hearted soul, agreed. But to add a bit of interest, he challenged a stranger to a game of poker. The stakes were agreed on. If the strange man won, he could spend the night for free. If, however, Lord Tottenham won, the stranger had to pay a large sum for his stake. During the game, Lord Tottenham's daughter, Anne, served refreshments. Now, in some versions of the story, this apparently took place over several days and some time. So, the stranger 
was very taken with Anne's looks, and she was charmed by his good looks. The flirtation was not missed by Lord Tottenham. While playing cards, Anne accidentally dropped a card, and while bending down to retrieve it, she caught a glimpse of the strangeness under the table. He had cloven hoofs instead of feet. When confronted with that, and roaring a response to be back later, the stranger shot through the roof in a ball of flames. The story goes on to say that Lady Anne never recovered from her ordeal and was locked in the tapestry room to live out her days. There was even a rumor that Lady Anne came up pregnant and was forced to deliver her illegitimate child, the devil's child, alone. Further tales indicate that Lady Anne's mother entered the room and killed the child, which was later buried in the walls of the house. After Lady Anne died, servants and family members reported seeing her ghost wander the house at night. Since Loftus Hall was open to the public in 2012, there have been reports from visitors who claim to have seen and felt unexplainable things while in Loftus Hall. Strange thing about those old country estates like that, they can have all kinds of stories, but no way of proving them. I'm pretty sure you've heard of Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Her reputation was not good. She's considered to be a mass murderer, serial killer, a killer of young girls, all so she could bathe in their blood. Elizabeth Bathory DX said, who was born on August 7, 1560, and died on August 21, 1614, so she lived 40, 54 years, was a Hungarian noblewoman and reported serial killer from the family of Bathory, who owned land in the Kingdom of Hungary, which is now Hungary, Slovakia, and Romania. Bathory had been labeled by Guinness World Records as the most prolific female murderer, though the number of her victims is debated. Bathory and four collaborators were accused of torturing and killing hundreds of girls and women between 1590 and 1610. The highest number of victims cited during Bathory's trial was 650. But this number comes from the claim by a servant girl named Susanna that Jacob Slivasi, Bathory's court official, had seen the figure in one of Bathory's private books. The book was never revealed and Slavasi never mentioned it in his testimony. Despite the evidence against Bathory, her family's importance protected her from a death sentence. She was imprisoned in December 1610 within the castle of Chakisa in present-day Slovakia. The stories of Bathory's sadistic serial murders are verified by the testimony of more than 300 witnesses and survivors as well as physical evidence and the presence 
of horribly mutilated dead, dying, and imprisoned girls found at the time of her arrest. Stories describing Bathory's vampiric tendencies, such as the tale that she bathed in the blood of virgins to retain her youth, were generally recorded years after her death and are considered unreliable. Her story quickly became part of national folklore and her infamy persists to this day. Some insist she inspired Bram Stoker's Dracula, published in 1897, though there is no evidence to support this hypothesis. Nicknames and literary epithets attributed to her include the Blood Countess and Countess Dracula. Elizabeth Bathory was born on a family estate in Royal Hungary in 1560 and spent her childhood at Exed Castle. Her father was Baron George VI Bathory of the Exed branch of the family, brother of Andrew Bonaventure Bathory, who had been Vovoid of Transylvania while her mother was Baroness Anna Bathory, daughter of Stephen Bathory of Somlio, another Vovoid of Transylvania who was of the Somlio branch. Through her mother, Elizabeth was the niece of the Hungarian noble Stephen Bathory, the King of Poland, and the Grand Duke of Lithuania of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and the Prince of Transylvania. Her older brother was a, also a Stephen Bathory, who became a Judge Royal of Hungary. As a child, Bathory suffered multiple seizures that may have been caused by epilepsy, possibly stemming from the inbreeding of her parents. At the time, symptoms relating to epilepsy were diagnosed as falling sickness and treatments included rubbing blood of a non-sufferer on the lips of an epileptic or giving the epileptic a mix of non-sufferer's blood and piece of skull as their episode ended. This has led to speculation that Bathory's killings during her later life were part of her efforts to cure the illness she had been suffering from since childhood. However, there again is no hard evidence supporting this speculation. Another proposal made by some sources in order to explain her cruelty in her later life is that she was trained by her family to be cruel. Stories include a young Bathory witnessing brutal punishments executed by her family's officers and being taught by family members involved with Satanism and witchcraft. Again, there's no hard evidence for these claims. Seems like everything about Elizabeth came out after she was dead, with no one to back her up, no one to give her support. Bathory was raised as a Calvinist Protestant. As a young woman, she learned Latin, German, Hungarian, and Greek. She was born into a privileged family of nobility. She was endowed with wealth, education, and a prominent social rank. But 
bad things followed along with Elizabeth. And I can't say that they were all true or that they were all false. They were just there. Accordingly, at the age of 13, before her first marriage, Bathory allegedly gave birth to a child. The child, said to have been fathered by a peasant boy, was supposedly given away to a local woman who was trusted by the Bathory family. The woman was paid for her actions and the child was taken to Wallachia. Evidence of this pregnancy came up long after Elizabeth's death through rumors spread by peasants. Therefore, the validity of the rumor is often disputed. Bathory was engaged at age 10 to Count Ferenc Nadasdi, member of the Nadasdi family, in what was probably a political arrangement within the circles of aristocracy. He was the son of Baron Thomas Nadasdi. At Elizabeth's social standing was higher than that of her husband, she refused to change her last name, and instead, Nadasdi assumed the name Bathory. The couple married when she was 15, that's a little bit more acceptable, and he was 19, so there was not that much age difference between them. On 8th of May, 1575, approximately 4,500 guests were invited to the wedding. That's a lot of people at a wedding. Nadasdi's wedding gift to Bathory was his household, the castle Chakasa situated in the Little Carpathians near present-day Nove Mesto nad Bahom in Trenkin, Slovakia. The castle had been bought by his mother in 1569 and was given to Nadasdi, who transferred it to Elizabeth during their nuptials, together with the country house and 17 adjacent villages. That's a heck of a wedding gift, isn't it? In 1578, Nadasdi became the chief commander of Hungarian troops, leading them to war against the Ottomans. With her husband away at war, Bathory managed business affairs and the estates. This role usually included responsibility for the Hungarian and Slovak people, providing medical care during the long war and Bathory was charged with the defense of her husband's estates, which lay on the route to Vienna. The threat of attack was significant, for the village of Chakitsa had previously been plundered by the Ottomans, while Sarvar, located near the border that divided Royal Hungary and Ottoman-occupied Hungary, was in even greater danger. There were several instances where Bathory intervened on behalf of destitute women, including a woman whose husband was captured by the Ottomans and a woman whose daughter was raped and impregnated. Bathory's other children include Orsalia, or Orsica Nadasdi, 1590 to unknown, who would later become the wife of Istvan II Binyo, Catalan, Arcata or Katarina Nadasdi, 1594 to unknown, Andras Nadasdi, 1596 to 
Nadasdi, 1598-1650, father of Franz III. Nadasdi was one of the leaders of the Magnet Rebellion against Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I. Some chronicles also indicate that the couple had another son named Miklos Nadasdi, although this cannot be confirmed, and it could be that he was simply a cousin or he died young, as he is not named in Bathory's will from 1610. Georgi Nadasdi is also supposedly the name of one of the deceased Nadasdi infants, but this cannot be confirmed. All of Elizabeth's children were cared for by governesses, as Bathory had been. Ferenc Nadasdi died on 4th of January, 1604, at the age of 48. Although the exact nature of the illness which led to his death is unknown, it seems to have started in 1601 and initially caused debilitating pain in his legs. From that time, he never fully recovered and in 1603 became permanently disabled. He had been married to Bathory for 29 years. Before dying, Nadasdi entrusted his heirs and widow to Grigory Thurzo, who would eventually lead the investigation into Bathory's crimes. Between 1602 and 1604, after rumors of Bathory's atrocities had spread throughout the kingdom, Lutheran minister Istvan Magyari made complaints against her, both publicly and at the court in Vienna. The Hungarian authorities took some time to respond to Magyari's complaints. Finally, in 1610, King Matthias II assigned Thurzo the Palatine of Hungary, to investigate. Thurzo ordered two notaries, Andras Keretsuri and Moses Siralki, to collect evidence in March of 1610. By October of 1610, they had collected 52 witnesses and statements. By 1611, that number had risen to over 300. According to the testimonies, Bathory's first victims were girls aged 10 to 14 years. Later, Bathory is said to have begun killing daughters of the lesser gentry, who were sent to her supervision by, her, by their parents to learn courtly etiquette. Abductions were said to have occurred as well. The atrocities described most consistently included several beatings, burnings, or mutilation of hands, biting of the flesh off the faces, arms, and other body parts, freezing or starving to death, and the use of needles was also mentioned by the collaborators in court. There were many suspected forms of torture carried out by Bathory. According to the Budapest City Archives, the girls were burned with hot tongs and then placed in freezing cold water. They were also covered in honey and live ants. Bathory was also suspected of cannibalism. Some witnesses named relatives who died while at the Bathory's place. Others reported to have seen traces of torture on dead bodies, some of which were buried in graveyards and others in unmarked locations. Two court officials claimed to have personally witnessed 
the countess torture and kill young servant girls. On 25th of January, 1611, Thurzo wrote in a letter to Hungarian King Matthias regarding the capture of the accused Elizabeth Bathory, her confinement in the castle. The Palatine also coordinated the steps of the investigation with the political struggle with the Prince of Transylvania. The widow was detained in the castle for the rest of her life, where she died at the age of 54. As Gregory Thurzo wrote, Elizabeth Bathory was locked in a bricked room, but according to other sources, written documents from the visit of priests in 1614, she was able to move freely and unhindered in the castle. So today the bondage would be house arrest. She wrote in a will in September 1610 in which she left all current and future inheritance possession to her children. In the last month of 1614, she signed her arrangement in which she distributed the estates, lands, and possessions among her children. On the evening of 20 August 1614, Bathory complained to her bodyguard that her hands were cold, whereupon he replied, It's nothing, mistress, just go lie down. She went to sleep and was found dead the next morning. She was buried in the church on 25 November 1614, but according to some sources, due to the villagers' uproar over having the countess buried in their cemetery, her body was moved to her birth home in Exit, where it was interred at the Bathory family crypt. The location of her body today is unknown. The church or the castle do not bear any markings of her possible grave. Elizabeth Bathory was either a very, very bad person or just a very wrongly done person. I, I have no doubt that she was probably mean to her, to her uh, workers, but that much of a serial murderer, I, I just, I don't know if it was what happened or the fact that she was not Catholic in a Catholic world and she owned a lot of stuff and that was one way to get it out of her is to uh, bring charges against her and see that she was ruined. But I don't know. I, I'm not... Uh, I don't know what to think about Elizabeth Bathory. Um, what do you think? Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour. Aaron has instituted a new area called 
entertaining short films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories. Nothing in particular. No particular genre. Just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.